Good morning. How are y'all doing today? Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I want to say if this is your first time joining us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. I am Pastor Nathan, and as a part of today's service, we will be celebrating in communion together. So if you're in the room, you should have gotten one of our little communion cups as you came in. If you did not, we will be having the elders walk through the room later to make sure you get those. But if you're watching online, I want to encourage you to get your communion emblems ready. We will be taking communion at the end of service today. But this morning, we are looking at two groups of people who answer the question, who represent the answer to the question that is asked at the very end of Revelation chapter 6. You see, as we've been studying through Revelation, the The great day of the wrath of God has come. The seals have been broken as God has started to pour out his judgment during the tribulation time on earth. And it's a terrible time of tribulation, of escalating judgments as God in this final period of the history of earth is starting to judge the wickedness and the sin on earth. And as these judgments are pouring out, it's like wave after wave crashing on the earth, and each wave is getting bigger as it then crashes down with the judgments of God, each one getting more destructive than the last. And at the end of chapter six, by the sixth seal, we see something very important, that rebellious earth acknowledges the truth that the judgments that are falling upon earth are from God Almighty. Not that they believe in him, not that they acknowledge him, but we see that they finally acknowledge that he is real and that the judgments are from him, and yet they still refuse to repent. So John then observes them at the very end of Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. He observes them, asks this important question, who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? That word stand there meaning to endure which is very reminiscent of Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, which calls this, uh, this end time the day of his coming. And it says, who will be able to endure the day or the time of his coming? Well, chapter 7 answers that question. Who is able to stand during this time? As God is judging the earth through a series of climactic judgments that affect everyone on the earth at that time, chapter 7 stands somewhat as a parenthetical between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. It's this moment in between the two, a break in the action, if you will, because it's like um, we've all seen it maybe in the movies or in comic books specifically, as a story is being told, as the narrative is being expressed, what you see then is meanwhile, right? Meanwhile, and the camera will shift to something else happening while the previous things are happening, or in that break in the action. And so here, between the sixth and seventh seals, things have gotten so bad that it tells us in Revelation 6 that people are hiding in caves, asking the rocks and the mountains to hide them from God Almighty. And they say, who can stand? Who can endure the wrath that is to come? You know, the same question is asked in Psalms chapter 76, verse 7. It says, and you, you are to be feared, speaking of God. And that word feared there means you are awe-inspiring. And it says, when you are angry, who can stand before you? Well, it's not the wicked, it's not the sinners, it's not the rebellious, because we see in Psalm chapter 1, verse 5, it says, therefore the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And so again, who can stand during this time? Who can endure during this time? Well, the answer is two groups, actually, and we see both of those groups here in chapter 7 of Revelation. The first group is a very specifically numbered 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, Jews who are sealed and protected during this time. And the second group is called a vast multitude that nobody could number. You know, back in the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk, he saw what was coming on the nation of Israel as God was about to pour out his judgment on the nation of Israel. And he asked a very important question in his uh, prophecy. The question he asked is, God, why would you let this happen? It's a question people are going to be asking during the time of tribulation. God, why would you let this happen? But as Habakkuk went and had his conversation with God, he came to understand what God was doing and why he was doing it. He came to understand God's judgment against sin, 
came to understand that God in his holiness and justice has to judge sin. And so as he let it all sink in, Habakkuk then said, okay, God, I get it, but please, in your judgment, remember mercy. I know you need to judge sin, God, but please, when you do, lace it with mercy. And thankfully, that is a pattern that our God follows. We see that throughout the entire scripture. That as God has to pour out his judgment at times, he does lace that judgment with mercy. And that is exactly what we see extended to these two groups of people during the tribulation time. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today in chapter 7. But first, we as God's people are going to spend some time worshiping him, praising his name because he is almighty. He is worthy. He is the lamb that was slain for our sin. And he deserves all the praise from his people. Amen. Father God, we thank you, Lord, so much for who you are. God, that we here in this age of grace, during this church age, Lord, we are able to stand as people redeemed, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, Lord. And we're so grateful for that. We're so thankful for that, Lord. But God, we know there is a time coming that as you take your church out of this world and then pour out your wrath on the sin and the sinners that still abide here, Lord, we know that even during that time, your mercy is still extended, that salvation is still possible, and that there will be some who cry out to you for salvation. Lord, we know during this time that you have a special plan and purpose for your chosen people, Israel. And God, we're so thankful, Lord, that in the midst of your judgments, there is still mercy. There is still grace. There is still the opportunity for salvation. And so, God, we want to study and learn and see what you're going to be doing during this time. Not, Lord, that we would then delay our own salvation and say, I'll do it later, but, God, to see how glorious and graceful and merciful you are, God. And that as your people today, saved by the blood of Christ, we would be people who walk in that grace and that mercy as we preach salvation to the lost. As we share the need, God, for people to cry out to you. As we warn them about judgment to come, that they would have the salvation that you offer them today. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. We ask that you would be praised. We ask that our worship would glorify your name today. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, we are in Revelation chapter 7. And so, it says in verse 1, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east, who had the seal of the living God. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. Then he goes on in verses five through eight to give a breakdown of those 144,000 from the tribes of the Israelites, 12,000 from each tribe, And he mentions them, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, if you'll notice there in verse 1, he opens with, after this. That is a term of chronology, after this. After John witnesses from heaven the events of the first through sixth seals, but before the seventh seal, after this, he mentions that he sees something taking place there, and he mentions immediately these four angels at the four corners of the earth. Now, you know, when you're studying the Bible, good biblical hermeneutics, and if you've never heard that word, uh, don't worry about it, you don't need to remember it. It's a fancy term for the proper way to interpret the Bible or the study and interpretation of Scripture. One of the rules of hermeneutics is when you read Scripture, the first thing you do is take it at its plain reading. And then if the plain reading isn't clear, you then start to evaluate the symbolism or the intent behind certain types of things. And as we're studying through Revelation, there is a lot that is symbolic, that is metaphorical, but there's also a lot that is just plain as it is read. And so these four angels there, I believe, are four angels that had control or authority over something in the earth. And then when it uses this phrase, the four corners of the earth, that phrase is an ancient phrase that was used um, similar to our modern equivalent when we would say something like the four points of the compass, 
We would understand what that means, north, south, east, west. It means, it means the entire area or the entire earth. And so these four angels are standing at the four corners of the earth. The in indication there, the implication is that these four angels have some type of worldwide effect or worldwide influence or authority. And specifically there, it says that they're restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth, the sea, or any tree. Now, biblically, if you go through and you look at the idea of winds and how they're related to God's work or heavenly work or those types of things, what you'll see is that winds often refer to the destructive force of God's judgment. It's when God's judgment is being poured out, it is often referred to as winds going forth. Uh, one example is in the Old Testament in Hosea chapter 13, verse 15. It says, although he flourishes among his brothers, an east wind will come, a wind from the Lord rising up from the desert, and his water sources will fail, and his springs will run dry, and the wind will plunder the treasury of every precious item. And so that is a, a, a symbolic telling of God's judgment coming forth, and there's many other examples. But when it says the four angels at the four corners of the earth are restraining the four winds, the four winds is a way to refer to the worldwide judgment, the four corners of the compass, if you will. That judgment that has taken place worldwide is now being restrained after the sixth seal or during the sixth seal, but before the seventh. And so with a chronological view of the seals and the trumpets and the bold judgments of Revelation, what we're seeing here is a momentary cessation of wrath a momentary restraining of what is being poured forth. After the sixth seal, these four winds, these, these four winds representing the worldwide judgment of God is being temporarily restrained. And then what we also then get is a glimpse of what is taking place on the earth during this time and a glimpse of what is to come because of that. If you remember when we looked at the first four seals, you had the first four seals that were represented by the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And those were both a chronological unveiling of activities and judgments on earth, but they were also a picture, a summary of the entire tribulation. And so we see that here in Revelation uh, 7 as well as we look at the uncountable number of people that are saved. And then we see here another angel, it says, with the seal of God, used to seal some particular servants of God on their foreheads. And again, that seal, the idea is in ancient times, kings or people in authority would have a signet ring with some type of marking, some type of logo, some type of brand on it that represented who they were in their authority. And then if they wanted to seal something to say, this can only be opened by somebody who bears this mark, or the fact that this thing that is being delivered with this seal bears the authority or the ownership of the one who sealed it, um, kings would then like, you know, put wax on it and stab it with their uh, signet ring. And so these seals would be something that kings or property owners would use to show ownership or authenticity. And so this angel has the seal of God himself, who he then goes for and seals this 144,000. So this first group that we see that I believe is an answer to the question, who can stand during this time of tribulation is this 144,000. Now, they're very specifically numbered, right? It says 144,000, and then just in case we're tempted to think, oh, that's just metaphorical, it tells us exactly how that 144,000 has come to, 12,000 from each of these 12 tribes. But what I want to point out here in our study of this, because the question is like, well, who are these 144,000 servants of God? Because there are numerous different interpretations of this that different groups have um, different people, different ways that Revelation is interpreted, sometimes leads to different interpretations of these 144,000. And so I just want to look at what it says. From the tribe of the Israelites. Is that unclear? What does he mean by Israelites? He, he means Israelites. 144,000 from every tribe of the Israelites. Now that's an interesting thing to note because like I said, some people in our world today say, no, this 144,000 refers to our modern group, our modern church. Um, some people look at that and go, no, it's a purely metaphorical way to refer to just some general gathering of people who are saved. Um, some just say it just represents any particular group of saved people. For example, um, Seventh-day Adventists, which some of you are familiar, um, they believe that the 144,000 are them. 
And it's not exactly 144,000. What it refers to is people who are adherents of Adventist theology. That's who the 144,000 are. Um, And they refer to themselves as spiritual Israel. So that's how they get around the fact that it says Israelites. Um, One of the ones we're probably most familiar with is the Jehovah's Witness cult, right? They uh, initially, when they first started, said, we... Jehovah's Witnesses, we are the 144,000, and so we are the ones that are going to be going to heaven. The problem was, is when 144,001 got saved, they were like, well, what do we tell that person? Sorry, bro, you took too long, right? I mean, it, was, it, became, a, it became a problem, and so what the Jehovah's Witness cult had to do was then adjust their theology and say, well, well, the first 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, which, which are these 144,000, they're the ones going to heaven, and every single one since um, are just going to be inhabiting the new earth. And so they got the second place prize or something like that. Um, but the real challenge is when you talk to a Jehovah's Witness about this, and they say, we are the 144,000, one of my favorite questions is, cool, which tribe are you from? And there's never a good answer. There was another cult called the Worldwide Church of God led by a man named Herbert Armstrong. He claimed that the members of his church were the 144,000. Um, some go so far as to say it, it's not even referring to Jewish people, as I mentioned, that it's just a metaphorical thing, you know, because what they say is that this listing of the 12 tribes, it's an irregular listing. It's not a normal listing of the tribes, right? And, and, and the, the reason they say that is because when you read the listing, as we read there, the tribe of Dan is left out. The tribe of Dan, which is one of the original 12 tribes, is not mentioned. Uh, the tribe of Manasseh is added in his place, and so they go, because it's an irregular listing, this can't be a literal listing of 144,000 Jewish people. And there's reasons for that. One of the reasons people think Dan is left out is because the tribe of Dan was the tribe of Israel that really aggressively brought in idolatry into the people of Israel. And so um, they were kind of uh, uh, dealt with for that, but they are going to be redeemed in the millennium, but we don't have time to get into that type of stuff. Um, but the idea or the, the follow-up to that saying these aren't to Jews because it's an irregular listing is, well, what, what is a normal listing of the tribes? Right? How is it supposed to be listed? Because if you go through the Old Testament, the tribes of Israel are listed in no less than 20 different ways. 20 different ways that the tribes of Israel are listed, including one in 1 Chronicles chapters 4-7, through 7, which indeed omits the tribe of Dan. So if, for someone to say these aren't actually Jewish people because the list is weird, what is a normal list? The Bible itself lists them in different ways. And so just because a listing of the tribes has subtle differences doesn't then mean the only conclusion is that this list is symbolic or metaphorical. And so, um, again, it says from every tribe of the Israelites. And then it lists 12,000 from the tribes. And so the point of this is that this 144,000, this first group of people in this parenthetical moment between the sixth and seventh seals that are able to stand are Jewish children of Israel. They are part of the God's special chosen people, the Jews. They are the covenant people that Scripture tells us. And some people get all bent out of shape about this. You know, well, I'm a part of the church. Yes, we are. But, but the Jews are a special covenant people, special to the Lord and have been from the very beginning. The Jewish people have always had a very special place in God's prophetic plan. And he, you just read through Scripture, you see how many covenants that he made with this special group of people. And then when you look at the Jewish people as a whole to, to identify just a lot of the reasons why they're so special, Scripture largely came from them. That's where Scripture, God's Word, came from. It's a lot of it is about them. A matter of fact, three-quarters of the entire Bible is about the Jewish people. It's about the Jewish people and their nation. Almost every single author of Scripture is Jewish. They are the ones that preserved Scripture As a part of their culture, they would meticulously hand the scripture down from father to son. As a father, the scribes would, they would write every letter of scripture. They would record it page by page, and then they would train their sons to do it, who would then carry on that tradition. And this process happened over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, preserving God's word. The apostles of Jesus, all Jewish. The 
savior of the world? Jesus himself? Jewish. The first church in Jerusalem was a Jewish congregation. The Jewish people have a very special place in God's heart. That's not to diminish those of us that aren't Jewish. It's just a fact that they are very special people to God. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, Paul the Apostle said this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. And so one of the truths about the tribulation period, this final seven years um, of Earth's history during this, this time, this age we're in, um, is at least in part about Israel. It's about the Jews. It's at least in part to prepare Israel to receive its Messiah. That's one of the reasons why this last seven-year time of tribulation is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah chapter 30. Jacob was the one, incidentally, who was renamed Israel. It's the time of Israel's trouble. In Daniel chapter 9, the prophet Daniel gave us a prophetic calendar. And this prophetic calendar about the end times events, it's all about the Jewish nation. It's all about Jerusalem. It's a very beautiful and detailed promise of the second coming of the Messiah. And so it's commonly referred to as the 70 weeks of Daniel. Okay, we don't have time to break down all the details of it, but go read Daniel chapter 9. It's a very interesting study to look at what Daniel has to say about the prophetic calendar of earth. And so in this thing, real quick, he says there are 70 weeks allotted to the history of what God is doing. And what he means by weeks is groups of seven, so 70 groups of seven, okay? You could get into all the math and stuff, and there's math from, you know, the time that, that this happens, you, you have 69 of these weeks, and then the Messiah shows up, and he's going to be cut off, and then you have the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy that hasn't happened yet, because there's a pause in that prophetic calendar as we have been in the age of grace, the age of the church. But this 70th week of Daniel is known as the day of the Lord or the great tribulation, the tribulation time that is to come, that which we are studying here in Revelation. And so as we are reading and studying about what God is doing on the earth in this time, much of it is to prepare Israel nationally to receive their Messiah. Now, nationally, Israel doesn't do that today. Nationally, they don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, they didn't do that the first time he came either, did they? As a matter of fact, it says that he came to his own and they received him not. Which is then why he says, he goes, I came to my people, they rejected me, and then I extended the offer to the whole world, including Gentiles, and that's the age that we live in today. But one day they will. One day they will accept their Messiah. They will accept Jesus as their Messiah and many Jews will be saved and sealed as a part of that process to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. And guess how many are going to be sealed and saved to do that? 144,000 of them, 12,000 from each tribe. Now again, that idea of being sealed means that there is um, some type of mark, imprint on them that represented who they belonged to. It represented ownership, on authenticity, and protection. And so it's like God saying on these particular Jewish people, here's my signet ring, here's my, here's my signature. They belong to me. They are mine. They know me, and I will protect them. It's interesting, interestingly, uh, during this age of grace in Ephesians chapter 1, we see a very similar picture, if not the same picture, as Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that, that during the age of grace, the church, those that are saved, both Jew and Gentile during the church age, are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so we have that same picture there. But here in Revelation chapter 7, specifically, these 144,000 are Jewish believers who come to believe in Jesus as Messiah after the tribulation has begun. In Revelation 14, we see these 144,000 again having survived the terrors of tribulation, being protected by God during this time. And there in Revelation 14, it says they show up with Jesus on Mount Zion, being the redeemed of the earth. So other reasons that I believe these are actually Jewish people and not just some symbolic representation of the church or something else 
Um, one is that the tribal affiliations are very specific. It doesn't just say, oh, tribes of some people. It's like, no, 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 tribes from these very specific tribes that are known and recognized as tribes of Israel. So they are a very particular socio-political group of people. The term Israelites is never specifically applied to the church in the New Testament, and it says that they're from every tribe of the Israelites. If you go to Romans chapter 11, you'll read there that it um, tells us that because Israel didn't want Jesus when he came the first time, that there was a partial hardening of Israel, and it says, until the fullness of the Gentiles, and that is the age we're in now. But once that fullness of the Gentiles comes, God is going to then start dealing with his people Israel again during tribulation. So God hasn't rejected his people, which some teach, some profess. Some say God is done with Israel altogether, but that is not what we see through Revelation as a time of their national salvation will come. And so again, these 144,000, according to Revelation 14, uh, verse 4, it says they are redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. And that idea of first fruits means that they are the beginning of the harvest of the full salvation of Israel. And so um, I don't see them as symbolic of the church, which incidentally is required for some of the alternate interpretations of Revelation. For some that may uh, line up with a mid-tribulation rapture or a pre-wrath rapture, um, in those particular interpretations, it requires you to look at the Jews in Revelation as not as actually Jews, but as just a symbolic um, telling. Or you have to look at Israel as the same as the church. And biblically, Israel and the church are not the same group of people. And so prophecies specifically for one don't necessarily apply to the other. So what are these people doing? What are these Jewish people doing? What are they sealed for, and what are they sealed to do during the tribulation period? Well, I believe that they are sealed to help fulfill a prophecy that Jesus made shortly before his crucifixion. This prophecy that Jesus made was in Matthew chapter 24, and incidentally, Matthew is the gospel that was written to primarily a Jewish audience. And so when you read the gospel of Matthew, it's really helpful to, to interpret what you're reading through the lens of, of, of a Jewish individual, of, of Jewish culture, of Jewish understanding. And so Jesus there speaking in Matthew 24 about this tribulation time predicts a great persecution that will fall on the Jewish people during tribulation. But then he says in Matthew 24, 14 that the good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so what are these 144,000 sealed for, sealed to do? What are they doing during tribulation? Well, I believe they're Jewish evangelists to go out and preach the, the truth of the Messiah, the truth of the gospel during this time where God's judgments are being poured out upon the earth. And these are 144,000 Jewish people who believe that Jesus is their Messiah. And they zealously go out to preach to the whole world, it says. And due to them being sealed in Revelation 14, saying that they are redeemed from the earth, that they are purchased and protected, that they then survive the judgments that are being poured out on earth during this time. And that leads us to the next group of people that we see standing out of the tribulation, verse 9 of Revelation 7. He says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So you'll notice that this group is very different from the 144,000. Some read Revelation 7 and go, oh, they're the same people. They're the same people, but unlike the first group, which very specifically said 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, this, troop said, this group it calls a vast multitude which no one could number. That's different than the first group. They're not the same group of people. And on top of that, they're not sealed like the 144,000 were sealed. So I believe this group of people are Gentiles. Specifically because it uses this phrase from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And that is a biblical way, a biblical phrase often used to refer to everybody else on the earth. So you got the 144,000 from the Israelites, and then you have this vast multitude of everybody else, right? Now, it also can't be the church, as some think, because the 24 elders, which represent the church, Back in Revelation 4 and 5, they're in heaven prior to the seals being broken. On top of that, it tells us that those 24 elders are in heaven seated on thrones, but this group, they are standing before the throne after the seals have started. 
Additionally, I don't believe that these are the church um, being saved at the midpoint or some point in tribulation because John doesn't even know who they are. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders asked John, who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? The phrasing in the original language is, John, do you know who these people are? What does John say in verse 14? I said to him, sir, you know. That's a way to say, why are you asking me? I don't know, you do. That's what this phrase reads in the original language. And then it says, then he told me, or the elder told him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So it tells us very specifically who they are. These are the ones coming out of the tribulation time. It calls it the great tribulation here. But this group is a huge number of people. It's a huge number of people having been saved during the events of the tribulation period. Likely, at least in part, by the preaching of these 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are preaching to the whole world and all the nations. And so these are people that during the tribulation time are saved by their faith in Jesus. These are people who came to trust Jesus and to love Jesus. It says that they have white robes on. And again, those white robes is that picture of the redemption that has been granted to them by the blood of Christ. As a matter of fact, it says they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It says that they have palm branches. Again, that was a picture that we saw in Palm Sunday, right? As the people were waving these palm branches, it was a picture of deliverance. It was a picture of deliverance from the intertestamental period with the Maccabees and the whole thing that took place there. But when they were delivered from their oppressors, they were waving these palm branches that represented God has delivered us. And so we see these people with these white robes and these palm branches representing their deliverance, their salvation. They're accepted by God, people who are accepted by him having been rejected on earth. Now, as we get further into the, the uh, study of Revelation, we're going to see that the tribulation period is a very difficult time for those who decide to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of us today here on this earth, we're like, eh, it's hard to be a Christian. People make fun of me. People, people give me a hard time. And there are many people, please do not misunderstand me, worldwide that are suffering greatly for their faith. But here in America, it's getting worse, but, but it's nothing like it's going to be in tribulation period. Tribulation period is going to be all the stuff we read about in, 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 in uh, uh, speculations where it's like, no, 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 you, someone finds out you're a Christian, they're going to come and kill you. They're going to come and, and not just take away your business, but it's going to be your very life on the line simply for saying, I believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so these people, rejected by the earth during tribulation, having accepted Jesus and being accepted by God, are seen here in Revelation 7. But I want to see them and, 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 and encourage you with their picture because you might be going through a time of pressure right now here on earth to conform Specifically here in America, we are under great pressure to conform to certain cultural and societal changes when it comes to gender ideology and gender identification. Pressure, 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 pressure. You have to conform. Just most recently, the, some of you have read about it, what's happened with Dodger Stadium, right? They're, they're, we're entering into Pride Month, and, and they're having their pride thing, and there's this particular group that, whose whole purpose is to, is to mock Catholicism, and they dress up as nuns, and they're celebrating the, the, just the, the lifestyle, and initially, Dodger Stadium was like, we're not going to give you an award, because you're not just about promoting your lifestyle, you're specifically about mocking the faith of Catholics. And then everybody's like, how dare you do that? And then they said, okay, you can come back, we'll give you an award. And there's this pressure in society today. Every generation's had something, but the pressure today in the world is to accept this, this ideology. And we've already seen it happen where, no, if you, if you don't accept this ideology, you can't even have a business. You can't make cakes. You can't sell flowers. If you don't accept this ideology, you're not going to get uh, money for your public school. If you don't accept this ideology, you can't work here. If you don't accept this ideology, that's the pressure we're under today. 
But there's other pressures that we face in the world as we're trying to walk and live and, and, and be the people God has called us to, to be. There's pressures to, to go party and do drugs and, and drink and be a part of that whole lifestyle. There's pressures to cheat on your spouse constantly from every angle. There, there's all kinds of pressure. And the pressure comes with, oh, why don't you just stop going to church? And why don't you stop believing that oppressive stuff? And why don't you just, why don't you just let go of that? And, you know, stop holding to the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, everybody is spiritual, and we all have our different path. And pressure, 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 pressure. You can't have your Bible on your desk at work. Oh, yeah, that, they can have their Koran on their desk at work, but you can't have your Bible on your desk at work. And it's easy to start thinking, you know, it's so hard to stand against that because I have to be around these people all the time, right? If it's in your workplace, sometimes it's family, your social circle, but don't forget, don't forget that there will be a time coming where you and them will stand before God, will stand before God Almighty, and you will stand before him and you will answer to him. And so the pressure can be great. The pressure can be overwhelming. But you don't have to give in. The Holy Spirit that you have within you can strengthen you to stand against that. The truth of the gospel can give you the strength to stand against that. But more importantly, know that they're going to stand against God before God one day, and so will you. And when God says, what did you do with my son? I don't want to be there and be like, well, I said I believed in him, but you know, I just kept relenting and backing away and accepting sin and trying to make everybody happy. I want to be able to say, you know, I, I stood for righteousness. I stood for Jesus Christ. I stood for him. And we see a picture of these people doing this here in the face of great, great persecution. And so as Christians, today in this age of grace, we live for the future now. We know we're going to stand before God one day. And we live for that future now. We don't live for the now in the now. <laughs> we live for Jesus now. We, we, we strive for obedience to him now. We want to glorify his name now in our life, in our living. Um, we don't want to glorify the word of our culture. We want to glorify the word of God. And so this vast multitude, it says, they will stand for truth on the earth during the reign of the Antichrist, be persecuted, likely lose their lives for it, but the result is they will stand before Christ in forgiveness, in purity, in grace, in mercy, free from the penalty of sin and death. And so yeah, the Bible tells us that during this time the world will fall to the lies of the Antichrist, but this vast multitude from every nation and every people, they will be overcomers. And they will be standing before God through and out of tribulation redeemed. It's a beautiful picture but I believe it's meant to be an encouragement to us today. You know, this is why I tell people when they go, well, if I could get saved during tribulation, I'll just wait till then. I'm like, if you can't stand for God today, what makes you think you're gonna stand for him then when the very real penalty is someone's gonna come up and kill you for it? It's just something you need to consider. But important truth, yes, Israel, the Jews, they are God's special, chosen people. And yes, there are special promises to them. Yes, the Bible tells all of us that those who bless Israel will be blessed, right? And that's why we support Israel and, and pray for Israel. But the gospel, it shows us here, is for everyone. The gospel is not limited to any one people group. It is for every single human being on earth. And so verse 10 we go on, it says, they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to, your, be to our God forever and ever, amen. And so these redeemed it says they crowd in a loud voice. They cried out in this loud voice. The idea here, the picture, is that they worshiped God with fervor and intensity. You know, I love it when I'm here in the front row during worship, and the worship from behind me is like pushing my hair forward. I love that. I love it when the body of Christ, when we are together crying out to God with our voices to praise him, to let him know how awesome and amazing he is. And I know sometimes that's a struggle, but that's why we call it a sacrifice of praise. 
that there's times where I'm like, God, I don't feel like praising you, but you're still worthy of it. You're still worth it. So we choose to enter into that. And so they're worshiping God with such fervor and such intensity, and the worship was so intense. I believe so filled with gratitude and joy and thankfulness, all of that, that it says the angels and the 24 elders and the four living creatures will all fell down and worship with them, and the whole host of heaven is praising God. And I love that picture because the Bible tells us that when one sinner comes to Jesus Christ, it says the entire host of heaven, all the angels rejoice. When one sinner, can you imagine the worship service when this vast, uncountable multitude are there? It's going to be amazing. And so, jump down to verse 15 with me. It says, for this reason, their salvation, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to the springs, to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so what we saw at the end of chapter six was the world turning to the rocks and the mountains to shelter them to hide them from God Almighty in his wrath. But these who turn to God in trust and love and salvation, asking for forgiveness, saying, God, I believe in who you are, I repent of my sin, we see that the truth is that God shelters them now. When the Antichrist lied to people during tribulation and they stood against it, believing this highly unpopular message at the time that God is true, that Jesus is Messiah, they ended up persecuted for it. And it gives us a hint of what that persecution looked like because it said they will no longer hunger, they will no longer thirst, right? It goes on to list a few things there. And it's interesting because later on, we see the enemy counterfeit God again, counterfeit the mark that God put on these 144,000 and come up with his own counterfeit mark, the mark of the beast. And we'll see that under his control of the earth that without that mark, you can't buy and you can't sell. What does that mean? Certain people can't buy food to eat, and so they became hungry. It tells us later in chapter 8 that the water sources become corrupted as a part of the judgment of God on the earth. Well, that would lead to a great thirst on the earth as clean water sources then are controlled by those in power, the Antichrist and his minions. And again, to buy clean water to sate your thirst, well, you can't do it unless you have that mark saying, I belong to the beast. And so there was a great thirst Plus, there are those who are going through revelation that as they are there on the earth, experiencing the judgments that are being poured out as the judgments of God come upon the earth, we see in chapter 16 on the fourth bold judgment, it says that the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire that were on the earth at that time. And so these people experienced this persecution and this suffering of the tribulation time, but they came to know God, they came to believe in him, and once in heaven, it says none of that happens anymore. There's no more hunger There's no more thirst. The sun no longer strikes them. Having shed tears, I would imagine, due to the persecutions and the sufferings that that they were experiencing on earth, they get to heaven and it says no more because God will wipe every tear from their eyes. You know, a part of Revelation, actually all of Revelation, it's not about what's the future. The very beginning of this book said it's a revelation of who? Jesus Christ. As we study this book, it's less about do you believe in post-trib or mid-trib or pre-trib? No, no, no. The question is what do we learn about Jesus? What does this teach us about Jesus? What does this teach us about his heart and who he is? And I love the picture here because in verse 17 it says, for the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. Will protect them, care for them, nurture them is what that word means. And he says he'll do that by leading them to the springs of the waters of life. It's interesting, that word for shepherd there is the same word that we get the term pastor from. And so when I was reading that, I was like, Jesus is going to pastor me. I can't wait for that. It reminds me of Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death, as you might understand it, I fear no danger 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this is what I learned from this whole picture here in Revelation chapter seven, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everybody, it's for every nation, it's for every people, it's offered to everyone today. It's gonna be offered to everyone then, but as we're gonna see as we study through Revelation, mankind says, no, we hate you. We don't want your salvation. And the judgments get worse and worse and worse as the hearts of mankind get harder and harder. And yes, the gospel will go out during tribulation time, but it's going out today. It's going out through the whole world today. It's going out to all the people of the earth today. One day, yeah, it's gonna go out in this really powerful way and there's gonna be this uncontrollable multitude that even though they're persecuted and killed, even though they suffer for their belief in Jesus, hunger, thirst, and even scorching heat, even in the midst of all that, they cry out to God and, and, and say, God, save us. God, I'm sorry for my sin. Even then, in the midst of the wrath of God pouring out on the earth, we see what we see today. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, salvation still being offered. And that is true today as it will be then. Our God is gracious. Our God is merciful. Our God is light, the Bible says. Our God is truth. Our God is love. And he is long-suffering. And he may be waiting for you. Like, will you just believe in me already? I've shown myself to you. I've spoken to you. And you have these questions that you read on forums. Well, that's, that question sinks Christianity. And, and that you get an answer over and over. And the reality of the situation is what you're hanging on to is sin. That's it. You want to keep sinning without consequence. And today, the long-suffering patience of God Almighty puts up with it, that you would have the opportunity to come to know him before he's pouring his wrath out on this earth. But I want to close by looking at this detail in verse 14 where it said, they washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? How many of you have ever gotten blood on a white shirt? Did washing it make it clean? Nope. It just stays, right? It's a permanent stain. And that's what happens. We get blood on, on clothes and it becomes a stain we can't remove. But isn't that a wonderful picture of sin? Sin is a stain we can't remove in our life. And these robes, speaking of the salvation they had after they were washed by the blood of Christ, these robes speak of their spiritual condition. Their lives having been made pure, washed by the pure blood of Jesus Christ. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message of the gospel today. That is going to be the message of the gospel during tribulation. That is going to be the point and the hope as God is pouring out his wrath on sin and it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. The point is, you're a sinner and without me there is no salvation. Cry out to me. That's the message of the gospel, that we can be purified from all of our sin by the blood of the Lamb. This truth about Jesus is, is what we're reminded here. It's what I'm reminded by in this chapter. This revelation of Jesus Christ, that is all about him, who he is, what he has done, what he will do. I read a story about a man who once fell into a pit and he couldn't get himself out. And a subjective person came along and said, well, I feel for you down there, and walked off. An objective person came along and said, well, it's logical that someone would fall into a pit. There's a pit, and they walked off. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think you're in that pit. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician calculated how he fell into the pit. A news reporter wanted the exclusive story on the pit. A legalistic Christian said, well, you deserve that pit. Confucius said, well, if you would have listened to me, you wouldn't be in the pit. Buddha said, your pit is only a state of mind. A realist said, well, it's a pit. A scientist calculated the pressure necessary in pounds per square inch to get him out of the pit. A geologist told him to appreciate the rock strata in the pit. An evolutionist said, well, this pit means that you're a rejected mutant destined to be removed from the evolutionary cycle, and so you're going to die in that pit so that you cannot produce any pit-falling offspring. The county inspector asked if he had a permit to dig the pit and then asked if he had a permit to climb out of the pit. A professor gave him a lecture on the elementary principles of the pit. 
An evasive person came along and avoided the subject of the pit altogether. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A charismatic from the faith movement said, just confess it and you won't be in that pit any longer. An optimist said, well, things could be worse. A pessimist said, things are going to get worse. And the theologians argued over the timing of his fall into the pit and the timing of him getting out of the pit. But Jesus saw the man, reached into the pit, took him by his hand, and lifted him out of the pit. That's the truth of scripture. It's the truth of revelation. Jesus wants to pull you out of the pit today. And if he's speaking to your heart and your need for him this morning, if he's speaking to you about your need for forgiveness because you've sinned against him and you know it, he's speaking to you about the reality that he wants to seal you today with the Holy Spirit of promise that you will be his now and forever. Receive him today. Don't wait until tribulation because your heart might harden then. And no matter what, you just might get more hardened by God, by the, by the judgments to fall, and you might reject him and reject him and reject him. Today is the day of salvation for you. Don't wait. More importantly than that, you don't even know if you're going to make it until tribulation. You could die this afternoon. And the Bible says to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. And if you find yourself standing before God today, and you have not been washed clean by the blood of Christ, you will stand there not in salvation. You will stand there in judgment. Receive him today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. And we thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. Lord, when we study these events that are still to come during this tribulation period, God, it's, it's, it's horrific. It's horror on a scale we can't even imagine. But God, even then, it is a picture of your holiness. It is a picture of the offense that sin is against you. Lord, it's also a picture of what you're going to do in dealing with sin. But Lord, because we are so consumed in sin, we are going to fall in that same judgment unless we have confessed you as Lord and Savior unless we have been washed clean by the shed blood of Christ on the cross, Lord, as you died to atone for our sin. Unless, God, we have put our faith in that and have been adopted into your family and sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, unless, God, we are yours, we will face judgment. And God, today is the day of salvation for some. And so while we're praying with heads bowed and eyes closed here in this room, and if you're watching online, if God has been speaking to your heart today, about your need to receive him as your Lord and Savior, about the truth that you have sin in your life, unconfessed sin, that you've broken God's law, and this, the truth that if you stood before him today, you would be guilty, and judgment would fall upon you. If that reality is hitting your heart today, and you want to say, God, forgive me, he receives you. He will not turn you away. And so while we're praying with heads bowed, eyes closed, if you want to receive Jesus today, I just want you to raise your hand where you're seated and say, yeah, I need to be saved. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you in the back. I see you. Anybody else? God is speaking to your heart today about your need for salvation. Your need to be saved. That you would be able to stand before God in righteousness, in holiness, and not in judgment. Anybody else in this room? Just raise your hand up where I could see it. If you're watching us online and God is speaking to you and you know you need to receive Jesus Christ this morning, just let us know in chat. I want to receive Jesus. Anybody else in these last few minutes? All right. Those of you that raised your hand, and even if you didn't for whatever reason, but you know you need to be saved, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Say, Father God, I believe you. I trust you. I believe that you are God. I believe I have sinned against you. I believe because of your holiness that there is a penalty due on me for breaking your law. Lord, I see a picture in your word of the seriousness of sin 
And Lord, I ask that you would forgive me. I ask that you would cleanse me. I ask that you would deliver me now, today, before this great wrath falls, that I would be with you safe forever. Thank you for loving me so much that you would adopt me into your family, that you would seal me now with the Holy Spirit, that you would call me your own, and that I would be able to stand before you in righteousness. Help me to live my life for you today in a way that glorifies you. Help me to stand for you in this world today to tell people about you, to live for you, that others would be saved as well. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you receive the Lord today, we have um, some new believers packets we want to give you guys uh, after service. And so you could come forward or you could go out into the foyer and one of our elders out there will have these for you. Because we want to help you just start walking this journey, this relationship with God that, that is now. But we're going to close today's service in communion as the body of Christ because communion is, is where we as the redeemed remember our redemption. It's where we remember what Jesus did for us. You know, Jesus said when he instituted communion, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And, you know, he wanted us to remember that the gospel, the good news, it was for us. It was for us who who received it. It was for us before we received it. But now those of us that have received it, we get to experience the blessing of it. When we called out to him in faith, we remember that we were saved because of his blood. We remember that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit as his forever. Having that guarantee of the inheritance of salvation in heaven, being forgiven and pure, clothed in his perfect righteousness, delivered from the penalty of sin forever. That's what this moment is when we celebrate communion. We remember that we're able to stand before him, not in guilt, not in shame, but in glory. And so you all should have received one of these cups before you came in. If you did not, please raise your hand. Our elders will walk one down to you. If you're online, hopefully you have your communion emblems with you. So real quick, on the front of this, you'll notice there's two tabs, a very thin plastic tab and a thick one. If you'll pull back the thin plastic tab right now to reveal the cracker here. You see, this represents the bread. When Jesus instituted communion with his disciples, it says he took the bread, he gave thanks to God for it, and he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. This bread represents his body. And he said, take it and do this in remembrance of me. In communion, we remember the price of our sin. We remember the cost of our sin. We remember the wrath of God on our sin as it fell on him instead of us. That's what we remember. Jesus wanted us to remember. He said, this bread, this is my body. It represents my body, my sinless body that was given for you. Because we need to remember that the wrath of God against sin is, 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 is terrible. But it didn't fall on us. It fell on him. The full judgment for your sin and my sin fell on Jesus Christ. He took it willingly so that you and I could have a relationship with him, a saving relationship with him today. How beautiful is that? You know, there's a judgment that we deserved for breaking God's law. It's a judgment we deserved for violating his will. It's the judgment we're seeing that is gonna be poured out into the future on this earth. But because he loved you and me so much, he stepped into our place. He stepped into our punishment. He suffered our punishment. He paid the price that we owed so that we can obtain salvation now. So that in this age of grace, in this time, we could be saved from his wrath. But when you look at the bread, it's, it's to bring to remembrance that he bled, he suffered, he died so that you could be forgiven. So that through our confession of faith in who he is, that we would be again adopted into his family, called children of God and not sufferers of his wrath to come. That's the truth. That is the truth of everything, that Jesus is the way to eternal life. Nothing else will do. And we remember that we have him because of our faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your broken body. Lord, we know you gave it for us, Lord. 
God, when we look at what you suffered in the scourging and the cross and everything, your body was, was obliterated, Lord. And yet, even in that, you fulfilled the truth of prophetic scripture that not a bone was broken. That God, down to the very details of what you suffered for our sin, it's prophetical proof that, God, you are the Messiah. And that you came once to, to be the lamb, the atonement for the entire world, Lord. But we know you're coming again in, in conquering victory. But now as we wait for that time, Lord, we remember that we are saved only because of what you did. That this price that we could not pay was paid for us. That the penalty that was due was taken by someone else. And God, we say thank you. We say thank you, God. That we may live free, that we may live forgiven, that we may stand before you in the confidence of our redemption to live for you. Thank you, God. Let's partake together. Now for those of you in the room, just very carefully pull back the thicker tab and it will reveal the juice here in the cup. You know, in that same moment when Jesus was instituting communion, it says he took the cup and he's told his disciples, this is the new covenant in my blood. Again, we talked about how with Jesus' um, God's relationship with Israel, he made covenants with them. But this was a covenant that he was making that applied to all of mankind. It wasn't the old covenant in the Jewish system of sacrifice how they had to go back and constantly offer new sacrifices to cover their sins. Jesus said, this is a new covenant that my blood is being shed once for all. And so he passed that cup and he said, drink of this cup and do this in remembrance of me because he wanted us to remember not just the horrible penalty of our sin and the horrible price that he paid that we would be forgiven, but he wanted us to remember that on the other side of that, we are clean. That we have a clean slate, an unblemished record. Our fellowship with him is completely restored. That when God looks at us through the blood of Christ, he sees perfection. He sees an unblemished child of his. And it's that is shed blood permanently, that state that is blood permanently purchased for us. A people who didn't deserve it, a people who couldn't earn it. That we're to remember that we were stained by sin like blood on a white shirt and nothing we could do could wash it away. And really in the big picture of us being so stained by the sin and blemish, the only thing that was really worth doing was to throw us away. But God said, no. I love you more than that. I love you more than that. And so as he atoned for our sin on the cross, the stain of our sin was forever purged. There is salvation in no other than Jesus Christ. And God's ultimate desire is that all would be saved. That's why he shed his blood for all. His desire is that all would come to know him. And because we have been cleansed by his shed blood, yes, we are people who eagerly look forward to his coming. The time where we're taken out of this earth to be with him, rescued from his wrath, to be with him forever. We look forward to that time, clothed with his robes of righteousness. And in the meantime, how do we express our gratitude to him? Both recognizing the horrible price of our sin, but then embracing the truth that we have been washed clean of the stain of it. How are we to live? It's in gratitude. By loving him first and foremost above all things. By living for him. By pursuing obedience. By telling others about him, telling everybody we can about the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Because if we have been washed clean, they can be washed clean. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful, God, for your shed blood. God, you didn't just take the wrath for our sin and leave us that way, but you changed our hearts. You washed us of the stain. You got rid of the blemish, Lord, that we are pure people because of you. We are redeemed people because of you. We're no longer stained. We're no longer under the control of sin. We're no longer at the mercy of the devil and his temptations, Lord but we're different. We're cleansed and then sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
God, in the life we're to live now is to walk in that freedom. To tell people about the freedom and the salvation you offer them. Lord, to tell people about the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. That you're not a God who glories in judgment, but that your desire is that all would be saved and that you made the way. God, we remember that. We remember that salvation that you granted to us through your blood, and we say thank you. Let's partake together. Well, Father God, we, we pray, Lord, as, as we learn of you through Revelation, that we would be even more motivated than before to tell people about who you are. That we would be people who want to see the gospel of Jesus Christ go forth in this world, that people would be saved. Lord, saved now, yes. God, we don't want to see anybody go through this terrible time of judgment. And so, Lord, may we be just filled with your spirit, equipped and empowered to go forth and do your work, to love as you love, to extend grace and mercy as you extend it, to talk of the forgiveness and the salvation that we have with everybody that will listen, that your name would be glorified. Lord, we know this world is dark and we know it's getting darker and we know we're quickly coming to that time, God, where you're gonna say enough on sin. But help us to be diligent and redeem the time now that we would stand in this world before you and before them, proclaiming the white robes that we have and waving those branches of deliverance to help others find the way to that beautiful place before you in forgiveness. We thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.